0: still in Genesis chapter one. It's okay though, it's great. Uh, Open your Bibles if you haven't already. Um, The the interesting thing about Christian history and journeying as a, a disciple of Jesus through a specific period of time is that depending on where you live, along the last 2,000 years of church history, there are gonna be different things that are gonna be important for Christians to think about. And in a previous generation, we could read a verse like Genesis 127, so that that says, so that God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And everybody would just go like, well, yeah, duh. But it just so happens that today, in 2021, the idea that we are created in the image of God, male and female, them's fighting words, right? Like we we recognize that we live in a society that has a problem with that. And so, fortunately, the Word of God seems to address all of these things that our culture brings up from time to time imagine that that word of god would be timely in every generation so this week we are going to talk about this idea of sex and gender Um, like always through this series we we want to give the opportunity to interact together so if you have questions at any point during the message today uh, just you can anonymously text them to that number Uh, And then we can interact with them a little bit when we're done. So we're going to focus on verse 27 in this uh, second half of day six of creation. God has created human beings. Last week, we talked about the image of God and what that means. Next week, we're going to talk more about uh, what it means to to rule and subdue and multiply and and the implications of that. But today we want to focus in on verse 27 and this idea of male and female. And the big idea that I want to leave everyone with this morning is that our bodies matter. We're created in the image of God as physical beings. We have this tendency in the church sometimes to to believe that what really matters is the immaterial part of us, the soul, and that our bodies are just a shell that we'll get rid of someday. But, But that's not really how scripture presents our physicality. Uh, we're going to get to it later, but, but even when we get new bodies in the resurrection, we still have bodies. Our, our physical nature is part of who we are, and it's part of how we image God. So this idea of uh, the image of God cre- in, in creation in man, the CSB says man. Maybe you have a different translation that says human beings. Uh, that word man in uh, 26 and 27 is the word adam. Think of that as a generic word for humanity. Um, Later in chapter two, it's going to be the first name of the first man. It's going to be Adam's name. But in chapter one, it's a broad term that talks about humanity in general. Man is created in the image of God. Man is created male and female. Humanity is created in the image of God. Humanity is created male and female. And remember last week we said the image of God is the same word as an idol. So, so a, 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 a Baal worshiper or a Molech worshiper would set up a little statue of his God, which wasn't God for him, but represented God for him and contained somehow the purpose and power of God in some aspect. And you we, false gods are false gods that way. But in Genesis, we learned that Human beings take the role of the idol in worship. We are images of God. We are representatives of God on the earth. That's one of the reasons why when we read in Exodus that the people of Israel aren't supposed to make images of God because there's already images of God, all of us. Mark Cortez writes, the image of God is a declaration that God intended to create human persons to be the physical means through which he would manifest his own divine presence in the world. So we are co-heirs. We are co-regents. We are like um, viceroys, rulers of the kingdom of the world underneath the authority of God. And so God creates humanity male and female now, God is a, is a spiritual being. God isn't a physical being. We see that in a lot of places in scripture. And so he himself does not have a sex or a gender, but something about who God is gets expressed in the male and the female. The image of God is male and female. So maleness and femaleness in some sense come out of who God is. And God self-identifies himself as a he in scripture, but we also see him use metaphors that lean into male characteristics as well as female characteristics. In Hosea 2, we read, God says, I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. He's speaking of the people of Israel and he's using the metaphors of a husband and a wife. And God says in this metaphor, I am the husband and I'm taking this nation as my wife. Throughout the prophets, God often uses this metaphor of himself as a loving husband to an unfaithful wife. But also in Isaiah 66, we read, as a mother comforts her son, so I will comfort you and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Again, God is speaking to the people and he's using the metaphor of a mother's love for a child. And he's applying himself to the role of the mother. And so God in his essence is not gendered, but there are aspects of the masculine and the feminine that are part of who he is. And in some sense, some way, we read in verse 27 that we are created male and female. Our sexed embodied nature is part of how we bear God's image. We've been talking about the functional creation, right? We've been, got the, the, the people of Israel aren't so much asking, how did this get here? They're asking, what is this for? And we're not gonna get into it today, but as soon as we get to verse 28, God tells humanity to be fruitful and multiply. And that's a command that's connected explicitly to our maleness and our femaleness. In one sense, our maleness and femaleness is the mechanism by which humanity fulfills the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. This is your function as image bearers, and this is how you will do it. This doesn't mean necessarily that every human being is only fulfilling their role as an image bearer through reproduction, but that our sexed natures are as men and women are tied to the image of God. This is really important for us to hold on to the importance of our physicality. There's a, there's a um, philosophy that gains traction in the second century called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism teaches, it's a branch of the early church that taught that the body was wicked. The body was evil. Physical things were broken. And in order to truly pursue God, we needed to get as far away from the physical as possible and pursue spiritual things because physical things were lesser. And that's a distortion of what we understand in Scripture because in Scripture, we see that Our physical bodies matter to God. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He writes in 1 Corinthians, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have from god you are not your own for you were bought with a price so glorify god with your body now paul's immediate context there is is the sexual sin that's rampant in corinth but it extends beyond that just to this idea that god cares about what we do with our bodies they matter to him they were created by him and they're an essential part of who we are meant to be and that's not just now but also into the future listen to Paul again in second Corinthians he says for we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed that's our body we have a building from God an eternal dwelling in the heavens not made with hands Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. Paul says, we long to be apart from this broken body, but we don't want to be rid of a body. He says, we don't want to be naked. We want a better body, a newer body, a redeemed body. We are meant to be embodied creatures. We are not souls that have bodies. We are embodied souls. And Paul doesn't long for the day when his body will be gone, but when his body will be new, free from sin and death. So masculinity, femininity, maleness, femaleness, somehow this is representative of of who God is in some mysterious way. God makes us male and female to be his imagers. So what does it mean to be a man or a woman? So I'm gonna give you some definitions here. These are um, just straightforward definitions. First one is, sex. So sex is defined as the categories used to classify the respective roles humans play in reproduction. You didn't come to church today thinking you were gonna get this, did you? (laughs) Humans are sexually dimorphic creatures. There are males and there are females. So we decide this by the presence or absence of a Y chromosome genetically, by internal reproductive organs, by external sexual anatomy and by endocrine systems that produce secondary sex characteristics. Now maybe you feel like this is a big gray area right now. The, the, the voices out in the world are, are pushing against this, but the reality is in the medical community, the definition of sex is pretty well defined. There's not a lot of disagreement about this reality. There is a small category of people who are called intersex people that are born uh, with a mix of sex characteristics or ambiguous sex characteristics. We're not gonna spend a lot of time talking about them today. They do exist, that is a reality. But that does not indicate that there is a third sex. Uh, Everything that I um, need to get through life I've found in Star Trek and there is a episode in Star Trek The Next Generation where they meet a group of aliens with three sexes. There, there's males and females and then there's this third sex and there's only like, you know, 10% of the population is born this way and they're oppressed and it, they're, they're making a, a statement in this episode about this issue. But what is what happens in this fictitious world is that there, the requirement for reproduction is a component from the male, a component from the female, and then a component from this third sex to make it all work. Now that's fiction, but that would be the reality of having a third sex. We don't have that in our species. If someone is born intersex, they contain characteristics of both of the two sexes. So humans are still sexually dimorphic in their makeup. The second definition is gender. Gender is the psychological, social, and cultural aspect of being male or female. Gender is how we think about ourselves as a sexed individual and how we act out our sexuality. Another definition, gender role. This is the social and cultural aspects of being male or female, sometimes shorthanded as Masculinity and femininity. Now, for a lot of us, there's there's some weird cultural baggage surrounded with these ideas. Much of this is what we pick up as children. Um, we learn a lot about what it means to be a boy and what it means to be a girl when we're young. I, I asked my youngest daughter this week a bunch of questions about about uh, different um, gender. Ideas. I said, you know, what colors do boys like and what colors do girls like? And she couldn't really come up with one. I guess that means that we've raised her a certain way. But she did say, I asked her, what, what's a boy job and what's a girl job? And so she said, girls can be veterinarians. So, so there you go. But maybe we, maybe we learned in school that like this is what boys are like and this is what girls are like. And for some of us, we didn't really fit neatly into those categories. Maybe, maybe you're a girl that likes sports and you didn't know what to do with that. Or maybe you're a boy that didn't like sports. That was my story. And you, you fall outside the pre-approved spectrum of what's a boy thing and what's a girl thing. And often in the schoolyard, you're mocked and you're ridiculed, and we grow up with a lot of weird baggage surrounding that. But the reality is a lot of the things that we believe about gender roles are completely arbitrary. Listen to this quote from the Ladies Home Journal from 1918. Pink, being a more decided and stronger color, is more suitable for the boy, while blue, which is more delicate and dainty, is prettier for the girl. That's not how I perceive those two colors, but just a hundred years ago, they were completely different in the way they were perceived. Gender roles are based on generalities, not absolutes. For instance, in general, men are taller than women, but there are tall women and there are shorter men, and so you can't make a blanket statement about that based on a generality. The Bible has very little to say about gender stereotypes. Most of the commands of scripture are directed at both men and women. Courage, strength, perseverance through suffering. Women, you are called to those things. Compassion, kindness, empathy. Men, you are called to those things. There are not feminine and masculine fruits of the spirit. Unfortunately, in the church, we tend to lean into the stereotypes of our culture without even thinking about it. At men's retreats, we eat meat and we shoot guns. At women's retreats, we do crafts and we drink tea. And there's (laughs) nothing wrong with that necessarily, but it's culture, not scripture, that informs those decisions. And oftentimes, and as a church leader, one of the things I think about is if we have a men's retreat and we eat meat and shoot guns, who in our congregation who are men are going to be like, yeah, that's just not my thing. And we alienate people because we're so stereotypical. Preston Sprinkle writes, stereotypes are descriptions of how many men and women behave, but they aren't biblical prescriptions for all We need to make sure that we don't read cultural stereotypes into the text of scripture and require men and women that don't fit those stereotypes to conform in order to be considered godly what i do think the bible is concerned about with regards to gender is that we present ourselves in a way in which our sex is understandable to others and that we shouldn't be ashamed about it remember we're made in god's image male and female and we shouldn't feel shame over that. First Corinthians 11, Paul says, "Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair it is to her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering." Now that passage is super deep and super weird and we're not going to get into it, but the big idea that Paul is making there is that you should be able to tell the difference between men and women in church. And the women, it seems like in Corinth, are um, dressing and arranging their hair in such a way as to obscure their femaleness. And he rebukes men for growing their hair out in a way that obscures their maleness. Now, I've seen just beautiful long flowing hair and then they turn around and they've got a beard and i i mean it's it's still a dude right (laughs) we should be able to tell men and women apart so in our culture what does that look like it it really depends i mean we don't some churches they they have uh, require women to wear head coverings because of they take that verse in a straightforward, literal way. and generally, we don't do that because that's not our cultural context. Many women in this room have hair that would be considered short. Some of the guys in this room have hair that's considered long. I remember learning that you know when the Beatles got in trouble for growing their hair out and it was like this long, and it's like, what's wrong with you people? Like, it's not that long. But it all depends on the cultural context that we're in. Can women wear pants? I hope so, because many of you are. If you are intentionally trying to obscure your biological sex, if you're ashamed of who you are as a man or a woman, then there's a discontinuity between how you view yourself and how God views you as an image bearer. And I think that's what scripture calls out, that we are image bearers of God and we should not feel shame over who God made us to be. We're called to live out our maleness and our femaleness under the authority of God's word, which allows us to a great deal of diversity in how that maleness and femaleness is expressed. We should be very careful when we label cultural practices as masculine or feminine and bring shame on individuals that don't fit neatly into those categories. So now we're gonna push a little farther into the controversy. What about people who are transgender? This is a a big topic in our cultural discourse right now. Another definition for you gender identity. This is one's internal sense of self as a male, a female, both, or neither. I am biologically male and I identify internally as male. That means I'm cisgender. You've probably heard that term. Cis means on the same side as. So my biological sex and my gender are in alignment. The word transgender means the opposite side as. A transgender individual, their biological sex and their internal sense of who they are as male or female are out of alignment. The word transgender is an umbrella term for the many ways in which people might experience and or present and express or live out their gender identities differently from people whose sense of gender identity is congruent with their biological sex. That's Mark Yarhouse again. So it's important to understand that this is an umbrella term. We're we're almost out of time. We're not going to get nearly deep into this as we should if we were going to treat it completely. We're barely going to scratch the surface. I would highly recommend to use Preston Sprinkle's book, Embodied, if you're interested in this conversation. It's very helpful. This is a super complex issue. We don't have time to cover even a fraction of the variables. Mark Yarhouse again says, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. Another definition for you, gender dysphoria a psychological term for the distress some people feel when their internal sense of self doesn't match their biological sex this is a psychological term from the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders so this is an official medical diagnosis gender dysphoria it means i i am a certain biological sex but inside i don't feel that way So how does the church handle this hot button issue? First of all, we go back to the image of God, right? Last week we said everyone is made in the image of God. And because they simply exist as human beings, they are valuable and deserve to be loved and cared for and given grace to and we always have to remember this, whenever there's some kind of contentious culture war kind of issue, there might be policy decisions that we have, a, uh, have to take a stand on. There might be ideas that we have that, that go against maybe the uh, prevailing cultural narrative, but there's also real people involved. We are often told that male athletes, they just want a competitive edge. So they're just going to gonna identify as women and compete in women's events because maybe they're just not good enough to compete in men's events. We're told that there's perverted men that just want to spy on little girls in the restroom, and that's why they want to use the women's restroom. And I'm sure that's true occasionally. I'm sure there are people like that, but generally that's not the case. Most trans people suffer from gender dysphoria, a real psychological condition that is really hurting them. And they're just looking for some kind of internal and external acceptance and relief. Listen to this story uh, quoted by Preston Sprinkle in his book, Embodied. This is a transgender individual. The piercing to the heart feeling when you feel like every single person in the room is staring at you like your heart is ripped open and they're just picking at the pieces. This may sound pretty harsh to someone who has never experienced gender dysphoria. However, for me, it happens in some degree almost every time I'm out in public places with people around me. It also happens before I get ready to go out and this has become such a battle, fighting just to leave my house and by the time I have fought for hours at a time, I'm exhausted and broken. I feel inadequate, broken and I just Want to disappear. As we encounter people who are suffering from this incongruence between their biological sex and their internal sense of gender, our theology of the image of God compels us to love and care for them. Remember, we talked about this last week the the news media wants us to be angry, wants us to hate our enemies, to put up walls to be fearful of what we don't understand. But the gospel calls us to love. Recent study of 6,456 trans adults, 57% have family members that refuse to speak to them. 50% experience harassment at school. 65% have suffered physical or sexual violence. And 69% have experienced homelessness these are people that Jesus loves. And as his church, just like all of the other areas of culture, we should be on the front lines showing the love of Christ to people in need. So what about Christians that identify as trans? What if maybe you're in here today and and you're a follower of Jesus? I don't know everyone. And and it's possible that you, you struggle with dysphoria. Maybe you've struggled with it quietly for your whole life and it's just something that lives below the surface and you feel like you can't talk about it and it's, it's not okay. What do we do with that? What do we do when, when in, our, in our love and compassion for trans people, they believe the gospel and they become part of the church? What do we do with that? the goal of all of our discipleship as Christians is to be made into the image of Christ, to look more and more like the perfect image of God, who's Jesus. And that transformation is going to look different for all of us because we're all at different places and we're all working through different things. But because of our sexed embodiment and how it is tied to our identity as image bearers, part of the journey of becoming more fully human is embracing embracing the divine image that God created us to be. And so if you struggle with gender dysphoria today or you know somebody who does, that's a difficult calling. To come to a place to say that because of who Jesus is and because I trust in the promises of his renewing my mind, I am going to work towards finding alignment between my biological sex and my gender identity, my eternal self. It requires patience, grace, courage, conviction. It it can't be done without the power of the Spirit of God. And if you're here today hearing this, I say that as a man who has never experienced that but I also say that as part of a church community that wants to love and support and journey alongside of you church that wants to be there and help you wrestle with what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully. Listen to this, these good words from the apostle Paul. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus is from heaven Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. No matter what it is inside you that is not working well, whether you experience gender dysphoria or a problem with lust or same-sex attraction or just anger and rage or bitterness or whatever, we could list sins all day long. The ultimate hope that the good news of Jesus brings us one day is that we will be completely transformed, made new with new bodies that are perfect in every way. And this is good news for all of us whether you seem to fit all the gender stereotypes the culture asks you to, or whether you find yourself totally out of place, cis, trans, no matter, the spirit of God can and will transform you into the image of his son if you trust him. And maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. Maybe maybe you're just exploring faith. Maybe you came with a friend. And there's this, this part of you that you think like, if only I could fix this thing, I would be made whole. Maybe it's an internal thing. Maybe it's an external thing. Maybe it's a financial thing, a job thing, a relationship thing, whatever it is. You think if, if this thing weren't an issue, I would be good. But the truth is, is you and I, we don't have it in us. We don't have the ability to fix it. It goes too deep for us heal. But Jesus does. Jesus can and Jesus will if we trust him. We're made in the image of God, male and female. God's hope for us is that we would bear his image around the world unashamed by who we have been made as. And as some of us struggle with that, church's role is to come alongside, support, build up, encourage, and walk with. So we're going to uh, do a couple questions. I already got one. Uh, So if you have any other questions, feel free to text them. This one is, in relation to the Trinity, how accurate is it to consider, if at all, that the Holy Spirit is more of a feminine entity of the character of God, given that God has established himself as the Father and Jesus as the Son? Um, I, a lot, I, that, that's a pretty popular idea that the, the Holy Spirit is kind of the feminine part of God. And, and that what that comes from is the, the word spirit in the Bible is a feminine word. Greek and Hebrew are gendered languages. English doesn't really do that, but a lot of languages assign a gender to the words that they, um, they use. But that's always pretty tricky because there's a lot of feminine words in Greek, like the word for sin, that's a feminine word. So we could be like, well, that's why women are so bad because f- sin is a feminine word. Like that doesn't make any sense, that's dumb. There's also, I mean, you could come up with half of the words in the Greek language that are feminine and uh, come up with some crazy theology there. Um, I also think, too, uh, we see Jesus doing a lot of things that culturally would have been considered feminine. I mean, to be a Roman man, you were strong, you were abrasive you didn't care for women, you lusted for women, and you didn't like children. That was the epitome of a Roman man. And Jesus is absolutely different than that, right? And so he pushes against masculine gender norms in his day. So I would, I would say that whatever is truly ma- masculine and feminine that exists in God is shared by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit equally because they're all equally God. That's kind of how I would um, tease that out. What else we got? If both men and women are made in the image of one God, then what is the functionality of being sexually dimorphic? How can this be leveraged for his glory in the current age? Wow. Um, Well, the functionality listed in Genesis is, is reproduction. We're going to talk about reproduction, I think, a little bit la- next week. And, and we've, we've kind of created a culture through um, largely through the advent of, of birth control to where reproduction is kind of a um, added possibility to romantic relationships. They're, it's not required anymore. Like if you, if you married someone in the 1800s, you're probably going to have some kids. It's just kind of how it works. Uh, today you can be married forever and just decide not to because of scientific advancements. And so in Genesis, when God says we're made male and female, and then immediately after he says God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Part of the function of dimorphic sexuality is reproduction. Uh, And and I'm not going to press this point too hard, but as Christians, we should should be considering what the role of children is in our lives. If we're married, uh, it's an important question to have with your spouse. Should we be having children? And if you're not married and intend to get married someday, you should be grappling with that as well. How can this be leveraged for his glory? I think there's a good argument to be made for Christians to have children. I think it's not the... um, only way that the gospel progresses in the world. We should be telling our unsaved friends and neighbors and coworkers about Jesus and spreading the gospel that way, but creating a culture of family where children are brought into the world and raised to believe in Jesus is an important part of what it, of discipleship in the family and in the church. And and I think you can um, make a good argument from Scripture that Christians should at least have an awareness of what role bringing children into the world has in their discipleship. Let's see what does this say. Claim today is that homosexuals and trans are born that way and therefore God intended it. Is there biblical backing for that argument? So this is a this is a. Um, unfortunate thing about the way certain sexually marginalized people have bound themselves together today. We talk about the LGBT movement. The T is is a really different kind of thing. Um, People that experience same-sex attraction or uh, their, their, um, yeah, their attraction to someone else is on a, a spectrum that isn't consistent with the biblical framework of of a monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. They're struggling with really deep, important things. And the church should be a place that's welcoming for gay and lesbian men and women. But trans folks are, are different. There's a, there's a different set of things going on there. Um, Gender identity is a different kind of struggle. So that's to say that, that, that those two things can be separated a little bit. Are individuals that identify this way born that way? Nobody knows, right? We're, we're all, by the time we know anything about who we are, we've been shaped by our genetics and our families and a whole load of other outside factors. And so the, the search for the like genetic answer Uh, for same-sex attraction or or things like that, it hasn't been super fruitful. I would say that we're born in a broken world. And whether you're born trans, whether you're born same-sex attracted, whether you're born with a nasty temper, like all of those things come from the fact that we swim in a world mired in sin. We are sinners from birth. That's not to say that those things in and of themselves are sinful. It's how we act on them. It's what we do with them. It's how we choose to behave because of those internal longings. But I would also say that scripture shows us that that's not the intention of how we're supposed to function. It's not part of the good world that God made. Um, I've been reading quite a bit about trans folk and and some trans Christians find a lot of comfort in the fact that their condition is part of the fall and that someday it will be gone because they'll have new bodies and this will be all fixed. Other trans Christians don't like that at all. It makes them feel comfortable. And and like Mark Yarhouse said, once you meet a trans person, you've met one trans person. And so I don't think you can globally say whether or not um, that's a helpful framework for everyone? However, when you say, is it biblical? The biblical evidence we have is that we are made male and female in God's image. The biblical evidence we have is that sexual activity is meant for a monogamous lifetime covenantal relationship with a man and a woman. These are the frameworks the positive frameworks that were given in scripture for how God has created men and women to act and be and behave and to to separate ourselves from that ideal and do something else is less than what God intends and in a great many cases it becomes sinful activity there are there are a variety of passages that speak against same-sex sexual relationships in scripture because they go against the standard that God has set for sexual relationships. And so even if I find comfort in the fact that this is the way I am is because I was born that way, I still have to grapple with the text of the word of God that says, this is what God expects of his people. And I say that, And I want to say it carefully. I don't want to say it flippantly because it's really, really hard. Many of us will never understand how hard it is, myself included, for someone who feels completely out of place in their body. And the struggle that that is. And to tell someone who struggles that way that, well, that's bad and it's wrong and you need to fix it, like it's not that easy. And that process, if if someone wants to follow Jesus and pursue that process, it's a slow process. It is a long process, most likely. And for those of us that don't identify in those ways and, and can't really relate to that, we need to be filled with grace and compassion towards people who do, while at the same time holding to the truth that this is what God's standard is for men and women. And this is how he wants us to play that out in our lives. This is a heavy subject. Again, it wouldn't be a heavy subject a hundred years ago. We would just read over this verse and keep going. But because of the cultural moment that we live in and all of the pushback that we're getting from a variety of places, I think it's important for us to think clearly about these things. And again, I barely scratched the surface here. Um, Preston Sprinkle's book Embodied is excellent. Um, It covers all all the stuff we talked about and way more if you're interested in thinking more clearly about these categories and how to um, approach this conversation. These are good questions, you guys. We're going to take communion like we always do. I want to read you another verse. This is Romans 8. Paul says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is wrapped up in the promise of the communion meal. If you are a Christian today, you have been predestined to be made like Jesus. Whatever it is inside you that does not look like Christ today will be made right by him his work on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed. This is the thing that causes our own transformation and he is doing it. And we'll see it to completion in your life in the future. And so as we sing, the communion tables open, come and grab the the double cup with the bread on the bottom and the the wine or the juice uh, on the top, take it back to your seat and spend a few minutes, with God. Spend a few minutes asking the Holy Spirit to show you what are the things that are out of congruence with who you've been made to be in your life? What are the areas that are just out of whack? And maybe they're big things that you wrestle with all the time. Maybe they're things that you hardly ever notice. But ask God to point those things out to you.